everybody. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. I'm black on the air. Nice to be back. Nice to be black. <laughs> Larry makes that pun every time and he thinks that we've never heard it before. No, it's just that I'm really a silly person and I can't stop myself. That's really what it is. When you know me, you know how silly I really am. But it's nice to be here. Um, hope you guys are doing well. I think we were off last week, so we're back up with some new podcasts coming. Today, um, Forrest Whitaker, the Forrest is one of those screen legends that I think is kind of stays under the radar as a screen legend, it seems to me. But when you think about his body of work, it's amazing. And we really had a real interesting talk about his roles and his approach to acting and some of the um, work he's done in Africa is is really uh, eye-opening. It's really amazing. So I think you'll enjoy the talk with my old pal, Forrest Whitaker. And other than that... Just uh, there's uh, so much going on. And you, here's what I thought I would do this time, just to mix it up a bit. I got my buddy Tommy Alter in. Hey, Tommy. Hey, man. Uh, <laughs> Tommy always makes me laugh. Uh, there's always something going on with Tommy. He's always uh, – Tommy's somehow – On the move. Yes, Tommy's on the move all the time. And he, if you follow him on Instagram, he gets, like, pictures with heads of states, the biggest stars – the coolest NBA players. How do you keep doing this, Tommy? How do you do that? I just, I find myself in weird situations. Uh-huh. I don't, it's not really on purpose. So like a good example yeah. is I was in Atlanta this weekend. Right. Um, and why were you in Atlanta? What was the I went to the a Hawks-Warriors game with Okay, Gladwell, so that was the first Friend reason. of this pod, Malcolm Wait, Gladwell. wait, wait. Stop it right there. This is what I mean about Tommy Alter. Yeah, I was at the Hawks-Warriors. Not just the Hawks game, but Hawks-Warriors. Well, wait, hold on a second. Let me finish. Which is... The hottest Hawks game of the year for the Hawks. Yes, that is because that the Warriors. Is true. That's by number far, one. By far the hottest number Hawks one. game of the number year. Number two, you go with the intellectual of our time, Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> you know, you're just hanging with Malcolm Gladwell. But, but How does is, that happen? But this is the thing. So, How are so, you hanging with Malcolm Gladwell so at Malcolm a Hawks Gladwell game? Malcolm Gladwell is my friend and also your friend. Yes, yes. Very, very and nice, man. we were talking. Atlanta's a great. Atlanta's one of the great. Definitely one of the great American cities. I would argue yeah. one of the great international cities. It's an amazing mm-hmm. food. Yes. A ton of stuff to do, a ton of history, the King Museum, all different things like that. Sure, absolutely. I wanted to go to Atlanta this year. I talked to him about it. I said, mm-hmm. be- because he uh, he travels all the time. I mean, he does his podcast, Revisions History, and he mm-hmm. writes, and he sort of enjoys going to different cities to write. And I said, I sort of suggested we should go down to Atlanta and <laughs> right. go, go to a Hawks game. Now, is, he, is Malcolm a basketball fan? Huge basketball fan. Oh, okay. Huge. I didn't know that. Right. Um, and so he uh, he was into it. And then, like, we kind of both made the calculation. Like, the Hawks are a terrible team. They're the second right. worst team in the NBA right true, now. They true. are, whether they will admit it or not, they're purposely tanking. So they have the most anonymous roster. Both maybe those in are the, true. Maybe in the history of the NBA. I mean, and their uniforms are horrible. I think if I showed mm. you a picture of every single guy on their team right now, you wouldn't be able to name one of them. And you're, a, basketball, and you're a basketball fan. It's just, I agree with that. They're doing that on purpose. That's how they operate. Yeah, they look and, like scrubs. Yeah, and so we figured, like, if we're going to go, we should. Sorry, Atlanta. This is do. They do. So we, we, we were going to go. Let's go for right. A a game that there's we care about the other team. Okay, and so there's two options there really. There's uh, the Cavs or the Warriors, and mm-hmm. the Cavs already played down there, so the Cavs weren't there. And so we yep. just figured 
listen, like, let's go for a Warriors game. And so we went. Um, Malcolm knows the guy that owns the Hawks, this guy Tony Wrestler. Of course. So he hooked us up with seats. Of course he, of course he did. He hooked us up with seats. And, this is what I mean, you and guys. The Warriors, Keep listening. Tommy the, doesn't even realize what he's the, saying. But the Warriors are like a, they're like a Warriors are a friend of the ringer. So the network realm, mm-hmm. we've done a ton of stuff. No, with, I know. You've hung out with We've done stuff guys. with Kevin. We've done a ton, a ton of stuff mm-hmm. with. See how he says Kevin. For the rest Kevin of us, Durant. it's Kevin Durant. Thank you, Tommy. Okay. Thank a, you. We've done a ton of stuff right. with Coach Steve Kerr. Right. With Nick Young. From, like, top to bottom. Like, Swaggy. literally the best players on the team yep. to the guys that don't play. We've done a lot of stuff with them. And so it. it was a good— like if it's like it's sort of like if you're gonna go to an event mm-hmm. or you're gonna go to a party, you want to make sure that there are people that you know at the party. Got it. In this case, they happen to be the best team, but we also ha- also yeah. happen to know them, and so sure, I get it. It's, it's fine. It's yeah, like, who can't relate to this yeah. story? Tom? So this is this is just <laughs> it is it is what it is. Like <laughs> Tom's like Larry, don't uh, I mean, don't don't hate on my lifestyle, I mean, Larry. I mean, Please listen, don't hate on my lifestyle. Listen, Larry, you had I'm an, not hating you on your had lifestyle. You had an invite to Atlanta, and you said I am and, not hating on your and lifestyle, you, and you passed. You could have gotten on a plane. Come on. Okay, what else? Um, Let's talk Trump. So Trump has been, I know we hate to bring it up, but he's Uh been, he's had an interesting week. He's, now he's been shifting on a couple different issues Uh that Republicans. Wait, Trump shifted on some issues? Yes, but now he's shifting (laughs) against the Republicans. So he's shifting, shifting on, he's already sort of going back and forth on guns, but trade is the most recent thing. Uh Gary Cohn. Uh, who's one of his top advisors from, from Goldman Sachs, Global Scary, as they call him. Yeah. He resigned. Uh, he resigned on Tuesday. Well, here's the thing. The Republicans are just, you know, getting slapped in the face by what was presented to them in the primaries. They just didn't want to know it. Look, here are the things that Trump ran on in the primaries that are non-Republican. Uh, sorry, I don't like POWs that were—I don't like <laughs> servicemen that were caught. Yeah. All right? Anti-Republican in its everything about that message is anti-Republicanism. <laughs> Against the we still uh, love you, a, Trump. About a Republican icon, about a Republican yes. nominee for president. Other thing is, Iraq War was wrong. I can't believe you voted for it. Complete anti-Republican message, and a lot of them jumped on that train. By the way, and they acted like it was Hillary that started that war, which was insane. Yeah, like the Democrats never even pushed back on that. They let them say, "Well, Hillary voted for the war." Fuck you, motherfuckers! That was your oh, war. Really? The Democrats yeah. didn't push back on something. It, it's no, shocking. they. I know. Don't even get me started on that. And their top secret debates—they never did. But. uh so and this trade thing that Trump's talking about, it's the one issue that he's had clarity about yeah. for his entire adult life. You could see clips of him on Oprah from the 80s where he's he said almost the exact same thing. So that's not that's them not doing their homework to think that that Trump would be taking that stance. Like there are so many other issues where I believe Trump does not have an ideology about. Yeah. He'd go either way. Almost every other issue. Almost say. every other issue. You know, and I've always said that. I think I still think his daughter has influence over him to have to sway him in certain directions on things, you know, and um, like the the gun debate was fascinating to watch because Trump kept being betrayed by his actual thoughts that were getting in the way in what his positions are supposed to be. Yes, Yes. his actual thoughts kept betraying his his positions yeah. that he was supposed to take. And it was so fascinating to watch because in real time, people were like, no, 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 no. We don't want you to actually think. No, 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 no. Don't have victims in the White House. When he said, because you're all controlled by the NRA and I'm not, it was fascinating because that's exactly what he believes. 
It's exactly the type of thing he would have said on the campaign trail. Yeah. That type of rhetoric. Yeah. Which is anti-Republican rhetoric. Yeah. It's anti. No. It's anti any sort of Washington. It's the Completely. swamp. It's anti the it, swamp. You're, when you use that kind of rhetoric, that means your race is over. Like you're about to leave the race. Yeah. <laughs> and you, yeah. And you keep it 100 like that, right? He's saying it as president. And the Republicans but, are like, no, somebody stop him from talking because so they my, know they can get him in a room later and get him to, you know, to, to take a position so the, as opposed to speak his mind. The question on trade now is so the the, the very brief sort of backstory and why this is an issue yes. for Republicans is, is this is something that could drastically it already sort of has dras- drastically affect the markets, yes. drastically affect the. And people don't realize our trade positions really are bipartisan positions. Yes, they really are. I don't care. People, both sides speak out against it during races, but both sides supported NAFTA. Both the whole pan trans-Pacific thing, whatever it's called, TPP. It's something that actually both sides kind of like, but they can't take those positions. Yeah, the Democrats tried to go after it after it became unpopular, but unpopular in theory. But in reality, why would we not want to have a trans-Pacific partnership? It makes sense, actually. Yeah, you know. So. So I know this is it's going to sound like a it's going to sound like a broken record because yes. I've, we, everyone's been asking this for a year now. Okay. But is there with this happening where he's basically sort of spitting in the face of his Republican colleagues? Now, forget the Democrats have been doing right. that for a year and a half. Is there anything combined with the sort of cascading this Mueller does, info, which is getting worse and worse, by yes. the way, where it's every day there's yes. another indictment. Yes. And it's like, it's, yes. I mean, as a, as a, so as a, and people jumping shit, even and as leaving a casual the White House, observer, yeah. which I'm not, but as a casual mm-hmm. observer, you see these things and you look at how many people who were working for this guy, yes. not even just during the election, after he was elected, mm-hmm. who are now cutting deals. Let with me Mueller. tell you something, Tommy. Is there any way where they're tur- they'll turn on him? Nobody gives a shit about that. About Nobody. What? About all of this crap. About Mueller or about the trade? About who's leaving the White House. Nobody cares about that crap. People, I'm talking about at the end of the day. Look, But when at, you say nobody, are you talking nobody. about, are you talking about no. just random voters? Yes. That's what I mean. When I talk about nobody, I mean in the scheme of the universe in which this person gets reelected. That's what I mean. In that scheme, who's working in the White House? Nobody gives a fuck about that. Who was working in the White House who wasn't there when Reagan was reelected? I don't know and I don't That's care. True. And That's true. And nobody cares. Nobody cares who was there when Obama was reelected and who wasn't. Nobody gives a shit about that stuff. Nobody cares. If nobody even cares that he slept with a porn star. And not only did he sleep with a porn star, he paid her off. Yes. And as we found out this week, he got her to sign an NDA, yes. which he didn't sign himself. And, and the non-disclosure <laughs> agreement, by the way, only says you can't talk about it. Later, they came back and said, not only do we not want you to talk about it, we want you to lie about yes. it, which yeah. is not part of an NDA. Lying about it is I different. Think this, I, think story, I think nobody this story— nobody cares, I don't know. Tommy, I is think my the point. Story Daniel's no, but Tommy, listen through. to me. Listen to me. I think it might listen cut to me. The evangelicals came out yeah, and said, we don't care. We they're never going to care. We forgive him. He's one of them. We Everybody sinned, you know? <laughs> Everybody's. I'm sorry, I'm doing a Southern accent. Too. I'm not saying that Southerners think this way, but you know, people. You're right. You're probably you're people right. throw all reality aside you're right, for this you're guy. Right. Also, I don't know what just, it is. And about there's just Trump. fatigue. At a yes. certain point, he's just overwhelming Completely. our senses with everything. It's cult of personality. I mean, we, we've been we've been you were just doing this, doing an interview for an hour, and there's been yeah. 20 things that have happened in that hour. Yes, that you can't. Even, I don't even know what they are, but yeah, I know that they don't care. I know that it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like the fire and fury, none of that shit matters right now. People were 
where like their mouths are drooling. Well, the left Steve, was, it got Steve Bannon. Everybody out of there. in the left, no, that did not get Steve Bannon out of there. Steve Bannon was already gone. But people's mouths were drooling about that bug. Oh, this is going to take down Trump. No. See, this is where, <laughs> but this is so, people have already forgotten so this is, about so it. So this is the pushback on that point because I mm-hmm. think you're Trump has already proven that he's a complete anomaly. He's a he's a historic political anomaly. There's never been anything like him, and that things just don't stick to him. No matter what yes. happens, things don't stick to him. Right. Where they do stick, and we've seen this, I mean, obviously we haven't had the midterms yet, but we've seen this even in these very small local elections, yep. is these other Republicans are not able to emulate Trump. No. They can't. Because it's cult's personality. Yeah, it's cult's so personality. Look what happened to Obama. Yeah. Obama was elected twice. Democrats were murdered around the country. But so, I mean, all the but, legislatures in governments, uh, local governments and everything, did a changeover so like you, nobody's you, business during the don't Obama. Don't you think that it does matter because it it sticks to them? So he, when he— when I'm he does, saying for what really counts, for what we're interested in and who is sitting in that White House, it doesn't matter. For Look, I believe that the Democrats will probably take re-control of the House in 2018, but that's a historical but if they, observation. if they take re-control of the House and they take re-control of the Senate, he might be out of there before 2020. No. Based on what? What do you mean based on what? Based, based on, on what? what? Based on what Mueller is My observation of that happening there's is that a lot. There is a, he's, no. there's a, there's, I don't think it's likely because no. I don't think they're going to take back both. But if they do— there's like there's. I'm wishing. I'm hoping. There's precedent. I'm there's hoping, precedent. The, I guess wishing. the only precedent is he's not retiring. He's not resigning. No, of course he's not. not. Are you kidding me? Nixon, so he's probably going to be. We're going to be stuck with him for another six years, probably. That's it. This Sorry, is, this is what's happening. All right. All right. Before we go, Last Oscars. Thing. Oscars. Yes. Your boy Kobe, Oscar winner. <laughs> yes. More Oscars than Stanley Kubrick. That is wrong. So wrong. Same number as Scorsese, I think. Scorsese, uh, Scorsese only, has only has one. I think he only has one. I, we can double check that. Well, but next time, make us short animated films, Scorsese <laughs> and Kubrick. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of people. It's a bit of a controversial one, the Kobe, because of his past and everything. And um, the little bit I saw of Dear Basketball, I was kind of shocked that it actually won an Oscar. Yeah, it Kobe, just seemed like Scorsese Kobe's, only has one Oscar. Kobe's owed to departed. himself. You yeah, know? it's not. It wasn't great. It doesn't make sense how that wants. Um, but I, I also, I don't, I mean, it's, to me, it's a little bit like when something, someone wins best song. Like it's, it's yeah. not, it's, it wasn't, it, it's not a, it's not a category that there were, if we, if you can't, you or I can't name the other nominees. Yeah. Then, I mean, it, it is what it is. Yeah. I guess so. What do you think about the other, uh, um, the other winners? You know, here's what's tough about the Academy Awards is some years, um, the movies that are the top tier movies are sometimes if they're more art house films than popular films, I think people's interest wanes. Um, there's been a lot of argument about because people are political during the the ceremony that a lot of people aren't watching it. But I think it's the movies themselves that bring it to it. Like the highest rated one was for Titanic when Titanic won all the awards. Yeah. I mean, the biggest figure. movie of the world. Yes. Yeah. Lord of the Rings, another one, you know. I think, like, for instance, if Black Panther gets nominated next year, a yeah. lot of people are going to watch that because they're going to want to see what happens. But, yeah. like, Shape of Water, it's really an art film to me. You know, I think it's beautifully shot. As I, said, <laughs> I was talking about this before, I don't know if I'm on board with these movies about women sleeping with beasts, <laughs> you know. Like, even that's Beauty and the your, Beast. That's I have problems. Go-to. I have problems with uh, Beauty and the Beast as a Disney film, which is basically about bestiality in my <laughs> mind. And it's like, hey, girls, if you can't find the right guy, there's a beast waiting for you somewhere. And even this one with Shape of Water, you know, 
well, <laughs> okay, so she can't talk. You know, she she likes to masturbate in her bathtub because she's so lonely. Nobody's around. Don't worry. There's a fish that's right <laughs> for you. Don't worry, for you. girls. There's a fish that's right for you somewhere. What kind of message is that? How about there's a human that's it's, right yeah, for you somewhere? Why has the woman got to got to rely on a fish? You never. I mean, look at at least with Splash. You know, there was this romanticized. You know, version of a mermaid. That yeah, that. But she, but look, in Splash was different. She turned into a human. Yeah. You know, and when he had. Splash was a goofy movie. Yes, but she turned into a human for him to have sex with her. He didn't have sex with the mermaid yeah. part. I'm know? with you. I mean, I, I've seen. So the only movie that, uh, the only movie the nominees that I didn't see was Shape of Water, and I just don't plan yeah. on seeing it. Just, it's, it's, it's beautifully done and everything. I'm just not into the whole ethos of it. Yeah. You know? I think, look. What, what at this time, won? can't women do did better than a fish? Is all I'm saying. You know, what was that? <laughs> did, they, did you think Get Out should have won? Um, for best film, <sighs> okay. Th- a lot of people aren't going to agree with me on this, but Phantom Thread to me was amazing. Oh, Phantom Thread was great. It was amazing. Yeah, Daniel Day Lewis' performance, of course, is fantastic. The women in that movie were uh, such a lot good of acting. twists too. They, they, the way they set it up Com- is not Paul how Thomas they, Anderson how the film ends at all. Such an amazing script. Um, the music was beautiful, beautiful music. It's a film I normally wouldn't think would take me into it, but the developments in the film, as you're saying, the twists in it, you're like, what? What's yeah. going on? But uh, it was really a beautiful film. You know, it was probably my favorite of all those. I like Get Out for a whole completely different reason. You yeah. know? It's tougher, I think, for a genre film to be best film. But also, here's what I think. Here's my last thing on this. I think they should change the name of the category. I think best film isn't the proper way to describe it. Best picture, you mean? Or best picture. I think it should be called picture of the year, you know, Hmm. or film of the year, you know. And I think it opens itself up to a lot of different films because I think what happens now is people don't realize that they're getting snotty while they're getting snotty. You know, like there's a lot of snottiness. Toward, to me, towards television comedies. Like, yeah. if they're not single camera, mm, well, as a critic, I can't give this a good review. Yeah. No, it's because we've trained ourselves to be snotty about TV comedies, you know. And I think we've trained ourselves to be kind of snotty about films that are deserving of best picture. You know, a lot of big-type films used to get these type of nominations. I don't think Titanic today would get the same nominations. No. You know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> very popular-type movie. But I think film of the year— Opens it up to different thinking different. about it. Do you think we're going to go and say it? But mm-hmm. something that I know Bill's talked about a lot. Do you think there should be a category for comedies in particular? It's a really good question. Um, I think it puts it in a subcategory. So, I mean, I wish more comedies were nominated for. Yeah, like, as example, I say, like film this, of like the this year. year, I think that like it would have been nice if Girls Trip. Yeah. For example, which was obviously did really well, but it was just a right. really well-made And some comedy. comedies have broken through. Tootsie yeah. was a movie that broke through. You know, Billy Wilder, The Apartment is one of the more famous yeah. ones, you know. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's tough to say. But I think film of the year. And, I like that. Uh, I like that's the thing that. that and, and performance of the year as not, opposed to best it's actor. It's not going to happen actors. necessarily, but I think it's yeah. a thing that should happen. But performance of the year is another yeah. way to look at it, too. You yeah. Know? It's something I have nothing against the terms best and that type of thing. I just think it opens you up to think about the films a little differently. Yeah. You know, anyhow, that's my take. All right, Tommy, thanks for stopping by. Uh, we should just call the shooting the shit with Tommy Alter sometimes when, uh, yeah. when he stops by. Love it. You know, we do this. Anyhow, uh, we got Forrest Whitaker coming up. But first, how about a word from one of our sponsors?
Okay, welcome back. Um, man, this is a treat. Um, we have what I consider one of the... Man, when you think about it, this guy really is one of our true screen legends right now. I think his body of work, how much time he's been doing this, he's great and everything. And he happens to be an old buddy, the great Forrest Whitaker. Thanks, Forrest. Oh, it's so good to be here with you, man. To Black on the Air. Uh, I mentioned it. Uh, Bill Simmons was just in here, and he brought up Fast Times uh -huh. at Ridgemont High, which was you know, your first kind of movie. Does it seem that time just goes by like that when you think about how long a career you've been able to have and been in this business? I mean, I met, spoiler alert, yeah. I met Forrest back in our college days. Yeah. We were doing, a, do you remember that, that thing that we did with Michael Rayson? Do you remember Michael Rayson? Oh, yeah, yeah, Who's, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, there was with George, him and George, uh, the, the guitarists and stuff, they had the place yeah. over on uh, off Franklin. And I think you were doing a, like a monologue. I did some stupid comedy thing. But that's when I first met you. And yeah. so I got to see how great Forrest was back in the day before anybody was. <laughs> that's funny. So it was no surprise, you know, when you, uh, when you burst upon the scene. But you've worked, uh, you've not only had great parts, you've worked with great directors, even early on, working with people like Scorsese. Yeah. Um, Stone, Oliver Stone, uh, yeah. Neil Jordan. Platoon. Other yeah. guys like that. Yeah, yeah. did very Levinson. That was fun. Very Levinson. Yeah. yeah, very. That was with Good Morning Vietnam. Good Morning Vietnam. That yeah. was so great. Yeah. You were hilarious in that, by the way. Oh, thanks. You were so, I mean, first, you, you've been able to be really, really funny and really, really dramatic, too. Have you ever thought of yourself as one type of thing? Like, like. I, I don't really. I, I think it's, it, it depends. I just fall into the rhythm of what I'm doing. And, yeah. and that's what works. And I've, I've got a chance to do some comedies. I don't get to do comedy as much as I would like to. Right. But, uh. Not as a comedian. But. No, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> but you have a very affable personality. A lot of if people don't know you, you know, you're very, you're very affable and congenial. But you play kind of these very powerful type of parts. I have. You know? Or, uh, or I think people are, think of me more as a dramatic actor. Yeah. Stuff. I mean, I, I think Rage in Harlem was an early one that was yeah. sort of fun and you know real comedic and stuff. And and there's not been a lot. You know, there's been a few. Sure. Yeah. I think one of the things I've always been impressed with your career, too, is is you've played a lot of people, too, mm -hmm. which I find can be very daunting playing a real person. Have, yeah. have, have you felt either one was harder playing a character or playing a real person? I think the challenges are different, but uh, mm -hmm. it's it's always uh, there's like a deep responsibility when you're yeah. when you're playing a real person, particularly if the person is still alive. Yes. You know? Right. Uh, but you're always like in sort of some responsibility to the family, to the legacy, yeah. to. You know, and trying to like be true to it, yeah. also be allow their fears and pains and things to show, mm -hmm. but to have the dignity around that that wraps around it, so they feel that they've been represented in a proper way. Well, what's the preparation like for something like that? Because was Charlie Parker the first real person you played? I believe so. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean that was you know I I, I was I was here in L.A. Mm -hmm. and. I had first, as soon as I got the job, or I thought I had the job, I went to go get a sax at a uh -huh. pawn shop. Wow. And I wow. started playing the sax, you know, before I officially had the role. Uh -huh. It wasn't until later that I realized that the sax was broken. Because wow. I was trying so hard to get a good sound out of it. Uh -huh. But actually, when they finally gave me one that really worked, it sounded pretty good. You know <laughs> That's I mean? hilarious. Yeah. You worked so hard with the broken one. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. And I, then I moved downtown to downtown L.A., mm -hmm. stayed in a loft down there, just covered all the windows with photos of him. And then for— So you kind of immersed yourself— Completely. Uh -huh. I left the, left the sort of world behind and just sort of sat with his music and playing and listening mm -hmm. and wandering the streets of downtown L.A. Wow. Trying to understand how to— Started using heroin. I didn't use heroin, <laughs> but I did. I did get. I did sort of try to get some understanding of it because downtown there was 
number of centers and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. And uh, what about the music part? Were you a Bird fan at the time? Were you a jazz fan? Uh, how hard was it, the the actual music part? Um, I think I had some understanding of music because I studied music more for, from a singing point of view. Right. But I, I, I really didn't know anything about the sax, and I didn't mm-hmm. uh, know jazz really that well. I just knew some of the names, some of the big names of jazz, like right. Miles and Coltrane yeah. and things like that. Right. Then when I got into the music, I had to— delve deep and try to understand everything about it and why you know because improv is interesting yeah because jazz improv right yeah you're mm-hmm. you're taking things from from the world yeah and so that's an expression of the way you're thinking what you're feeling at that time right so inside of that one song you can pull together these little figures mm-hmm. that let me have a map in a way to try to figure out what's going on with you where is your mind well, that's at, interesting you know? using the music to get a window into the life almost yeah right? There was a great special on Coltrane, I think, recently. I didn't know that much about him personally, Mm -hmm. you know, like that he died at such a young age, too, you know. But it was interesting how he poured his life into that music, and that music became an expression of that, you know. That was the thing I was trying to understand. You know, when I would be playing the sax, I wanted to do the fingering right. It was really important to me. (laughs) You don't want people to say, he doesn't know how to play that right. Exactly, man. And I started putting, like, words to the sounds. Mm -hmm. So, and, and sometimes when I would be playing, I would be hearing like a monologue almost of the different things I was thinking and stuff. So right. I would go to those notes because I, ha- I was trying to say a certain thing. And I, I kind of associated it in a weird way that allowed me to actually allowed Clint to, in the end, focus on my hands when I was actually playing. Yeah. So it, cause it actually looked, uh, it was staying in the right register, staying in the right keys. Right. You know, uh, Lenny Niehaus had worked with me on it. So. Uh-huh. And Clint East. Clint, Clint Eastwood, of course, we're talking about. He's yeah. a huge jazz fan. Yeah. He's the, he is the reason probably why it got made, I would assume. He is the reason. I mean, yeah. he's, he's in love with jazz. He plays the cornet, he plays the piano. Uh-huh. He's a composer. Yeah. You know? uh, and so I think for me, it was such a big thing because he, he believed in, in, in me. I had, there was nothing to warrant mm-hmm. all that. You yeah. Know what I mean, I hadn't done anything of any kind of big ilk or something. And he, mm-hmm. he gave me that trust. And yeah. the first time the movie kind of touched me because, uh, the first time I was embraced by the international community because I wow. went to cons and stuff and I'd won the award there as a kid. So, yeah. Um, it was very impactful to my life. Do you feel like working with so many great directors early in your career kind of shaped you in a way that maybe, just not working with them would have like did did it leave some kind of indelible like mark on you in terms of how you should operate in the business or anything like that? I think it it, it taught me something about. I mean, the one common denominator that they all had was like a sort of vision, a unique way of looking at the world, sort mm-hmm. of looking in the corners. Like even like Jim Jarmusch, you know. He, sure, absolutely. He goes in a room and he sees he's focuses somewhere different. Yeah, and it's that unique focus and purpose that I think I started to see in the different people because they were unbelievably different from each other. I mean, just absolutely night and day. I mean, Altman and and uh, Neil Jordan are completely different yeah. animals, and but yet they both have a distinct vision, you know. And Scorsese even, yeah. and not only working with Scorsese, just to go back to Color Money, but working with Paul Newman, yeah. <laughs> like in an yeah. iconic scene. To, now, what did it feel like as a young kid? Basically, you were a kid working with a, a screen legend like that. Was is was he was it is was he as cool as it seemed like? You know, for Paul Newman, it was um, it was a strange experience actually. Uh-huh. You know, not just working with him, but I see. 
See, I was a replacement uh-huh. in that movie. There was somebody else I cast before me. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he was fired, you know, um, because he couldn't play pool. Uh-huh. And um, then they called me and they asked if I would be willing to fly myself to Chicago. Uh-huh. Um, and I said, well, how much time do I have? And they said, like, you yeah, have a couple of weeks before. And so for two weeks, all I did was play pool. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I went to— I went to Chicago. First thing I did was go to the pool hall. Next day, they had me playing the nine ball champion of the world. What? Because Scorsese said, let's just forget about the reading. Let's just play pool. No way. (laughs) Wait. Hold on a second. (laughs) Did you play pool before that or was it those two weeks where you trained yourself? I was doing pool 14 hours a day every day. You hadn't really played pool before that? Not really. That's crazy (laughs) for That's crazy. But I, t- I said that I could play pool because I had played pool, right. but not really played. Yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> that's <laughs> like, yeah, I, I can shoot baskets. Well, you're going to play Michael Jordan for this <laughs> yeah, scene. Right exactly. Now, right? I, it was, I was lucky, though, because uh, the guy was trying to prove to Martin Scorsese that they should do some eight ball in the movie. Uh-huh. And so the game, he said, okay, let's play a game of eight ball. Right. So for me, I had been playing nine ball <laughs> yes. for weeks. Right. And so I was like, oh, my God. Oh, I'm, fuck. Literally, I almost <laughs> won the game. You know, I, 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 really? I wasn't missing any shots. I was just going boom, 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 boom. And I was making noises and being cocky about it, yes, too. Yes, right. And uh, I missed a shot, and that was that was sort of the end of that. Yes. <laughs> you know? And you kind of, I remember the role, uh, you, that cockiness was so fun to watch, too. You know, they oh, man, I'm sorry. You know, it's like yeah. that type of thing. Yeah. Where you make a shot, oh, my bad. My yeah, exactly. Bad. <laughs> Can you believe that? Yeah, that was so fun. Now— I contrast, you know, those types of roles with, uh, like, Last King of Scotland mm. and preparing for somebody like Idi Amin, you know. Mm. I mean, that's a that's got to be a whole different thing. Did, did, first of all, did you travel to Uganda at all and do any, like, homework there? Well, we all? shot the whole film there. Uh-huh. And, uh, I mean, before you shot I it, was there uh, about a month and a half before okay. we started shooting. Right. I started prepping for the role, like, maybe four or five months before because mm-hmm. I had to. I was trying to learn Kiswahili right. and uh, studying the history and watching this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barry Schroeder had made this documentary on Idi Amin, so he followed him for two years. So right. there's all this, there's so much material on Idi Amin you mm-hmm. can watch on video. And so I was studying that, and then I, I went to Uganda and started doing my research, meeting mm-hmm. people talking to his sisters, brothers, you know. Uh, yeah, what was it like talking to people who knew him personally as opposed, because we all had a image of who Idi Amin was. Yeah. Like, did that, did you get any compassion for him at all? Or did you just, I mean, I can't imagine what that must have been like. Well, I mean, <laughs> you don't want to look, you know, you're trying to figure out what made him become what he became. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's empathy and compassion right away because you're searching and stuff. And you and then you have to understand too, and like in, in Uganda and different places, there uh-huh. are many people who consider him a hero. Uh-huh. So it's not because he's like uh, someone who went up against the West and against actually the kicked him out of the country, yeah. country, and actually did, and he died, a, you know, a natural death in Saudi Arabia, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, for me, it, for me, when I'm looking for a char- as a character, yeah. or any character. I'm trying to pull away all the different layers of their experiences in their life and their feelings. And, 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 and I sort of just pull them away like pieces and, that are covering them until I get to the source. In my opinion, at the source, there's something pure uh-huh. and that we're all like kind of connected to. And so I don't look at the—I'm looking for how to get to the source. And then I'll put those things back on, okay. back, to all the experiences back now that I've uncovered to the bottom of it, to the core. Uh-huh. And when the pieces are back on, there's still, for me— there's cracks now. 
in this thing. Okay. I can see the light of the person inside of, that's at the bottom, at the core of who they are. Yeah. I didn't, I mean, Idi Amin um, taught me a lot about, you know, the way he dealt with life, the way he dealt with, you know, he was kind of put into a position as a president. Mm-hmm. He didn't, he didn't ask for it. And he was a soldier and he had always been rewarded as a soldier. You know what I mean? And, and that carried itself into when he became the president. Mm-hmm. He was trying to do something that he wasn't prepared for. He was, but at the same time, he was doing Pan-African things like renaming like the lakes back to their natural names, back to their African names yeah. from Lake Victoria to whatever, and forcing the people to study their own languages and all these different things. At the same time, he had this major amount of fear, you know, that people were trying to destroy him. There were 11 camps around the country that were trying to destroy him, mm-hmm. you know, and so this fear perpetuated itself to the to the way he had been fighting with the Mau Mau's or fighting anyone. And, he's, and, and a lot of death and destruction came came about, you know. But when you try to understand what was motivating him, what motivated him inside the scenes of film, why he did certain things, why he surrounded himself with his own tribe, Kwaku tribe, you know, mm-hmm. um, you start to see him in a different in a different uh, light, you know, because you're looking for the causes, the reasons. The, mm-hmm. And you have to start from that human place. You have to. You right. Know, every part, you have to, you know, yeah. I mean, because it, it's the truth. Right. I think the, the core thing about life, I mean, about things is, is, is to find empathy and to understand that the person across from you is you in a way. Mm-hmm. And that given different circumstances, given different moments, given different things inside of your life. And so when you approach somebody like him, what you do is you try to look at all the experiences. So I, I went to the mosque that he went to. I, I walked to the streets today. I went to his hometown, to his home village, sat with his brothers and his sisters, sat with people who had, whose family had been killed by him, news reporters mm. that were talking with him. All these things I kept, all the way through the entire process of shooting the film, I was constantly still doing research. Even during to, the filming. Mm-hmm. All the way through to the yeah. very end. You know, and I had a guy who was helping me a lot, and um, he— we, uh, we, we, we would go to different experiences of the source of the Nile to deep into the jungle, you know, uh, where there were, there was things I would see like underneath trees where they set the beginning of man, you know, and you call uh, inside and there's a, like uh, underneath the roots of a tree that's like a home almost, you know what mm. I mean? And so there was so many different experiences that I, I, I had and, uh, it shaped the way I played him. And it wasn't until the very end when I said, what haven't I done? He says, the only thing you haven't done is, uh, go on safari here. Mm-hmm. And there's a major fam- famous scene in the video where he's on safari and he's talking to the alligator and he's telling them That's what hilarious. to do and stuff. Yeah. And, um, but I did that and that was kind of the final thing because I needed to understand that part too. But otherwise I was just going through different experiences of different things, riding on backs of jeeps and backs of cars, uh-huh. marching, walking with the people in the streets, eating on the side of the road. I think I don't think I ate anything but that than African food that he ate, you know, matoke and different things. See, I, that is amazing to me. It's such an immersive experience. It seems like an experience like that alone would have to have some kind of effect and change on you. Oh, for sure. Right. It, it changed me. I had never, first of all, I hadn't been to the African continent before that. Mm. And uh, I was trying to understand from the ground up what it's like to be African mm-hmm. and to understand what it's like to be Kakwa you know, this particular tribe and it's like to be Ugandan, you know what I mean? And, and mm. to spread out and understand that and to be a soldier, to be a warrior. Did to, it give you a firmer, a better sense of yourself and like just where I'll say our roots are, I'm talking about the African continent as a whole, of course, that this is more specific, you know, in yeah. terms of tribe and everything. But it did though. Mm-hmm. I mean, it couldn't, couldn't help it uh, 
to, to understand. I mean, at, at certain points, I would be able to look around me and see them, the people and what different tribes they were from uh-huh. just by the way they did certain things or which greetings they gave. Or uh-huh. you know, So it gave me an understanding and an ancestral understanding, too, that I think was yeah. important to me as a person to continue to grow. Did, did you hear from the people of Uganda? Were they proud of you doing this movie? I know it's an odd thing to say, <laughs> but because of— you know, he was such this complex figure, but he's regarded as this brutal dictator, yeah. of course, and everything. Yeah, of course. What, what, would, what was the reaction that you got from? I mean, I got really powerful response from the From the people there? People. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. I was nervous. I mean, I had to show, I showed the film to the president, you know, seventy at one point and his generals, and they had been fighting. They were part of the fighting forces against him during yes, that time. Yes, of course, yeah. And so I wasn't sure how they were, people would respond and stuff. And mm-hmm. as you say, you know, hundreds of thousands of people died. Absolutely. That's no joke. Yeah. You know, so, so many people have so many torn memories and some have like such personal memories mm-hmm. of loss of family. But uh, it seems like they embraced uh, the ones that I met, uh, embraced the film. And I'm, I'm in Uganda quite often, you know. Uh, really? Yeah. I was in Uganda, what, two months ago, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have a I have a foundation, our NGO mm-hmm. works in conflict resolution. We have our we're doing our work in South Sudan, and we have like a strong enclaves in the in the refugee camps in Uganda and uh, in the north in Gulu section, mm-hmm. like large whole Subacholi region. You know, so mm-hmm. I'm there with my you know because I have teams of people there. Maybe I don't know fifty different people working in my foundation in those areas and stuff. What is your goal uh, there? Uh, or what is your mission? Oh, we're a conflict resolution organization that gives people the tools. What we do is we train you. I think we could use you over here for some conflict resolution. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have we have some work here in Los Angeles that we yeah. started. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know where you want me to. But in Los Angeles, we started a conflict resolution education program that we've inserted inside of the LA City school system. Oh, wow. So they gave us a pilot. They allowed us to have a pilot at Carnegie Middle School mm-hmm. uh, in Carson, and uh, so it's an all school approach, and we've been a uh, the youth have been trained in this, and it's been become a part of the core curriculum of the schools. So right. it wasn't outside of the educational patterns that they do already, mm-hmm. and um, and it's we've been seeing some some interesting results and stuff. We're about to expand the program here in Los Angeles. Yeah. So you're moving now, the yeah. forgiven, right? Right. Yeah, I was trying to remember because <laughs> well, but the word forgiven, of course, is a very powerful word. Mm. And here you are once again, uh, God, playing one of the most iconic figures. Of the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, this was pretty nervous. Desmond Tutu, which was an interesting person. Like, my memory of Tutu, he always seemed so charming when he was over here, you know. He was yeah. very funny. Yeah. I remember and it would seem to be a challenge to play this type of character because I feel as Americans, we don't get to have that experience that the South Africans had of Tutu. When was there. And this film, to me, kind of— Gives us a bit of some of that experience, at least in that window when mm, mm. he was uh, doing some of the um, the mm. truth and reconciliation uh, committee. Yeah, committee. Um, so tell me about your process with Tutu because and you have to wear prosthetics for this. I mean, he looked uh, a little different. Yeah, was he was kind of a was he a short guy? He was a small. He was small, small too. Man. And yeah. like here we are, Forrest Whitaker. You know, yeah. your presence on screen is very is very big. You know, it's very large. Yeah, I was, I was trying to capture. Mm-hmm. Just his uh, his energy, his essence, you know, his, uh-huh. the way he vibrates and stuff as a person. Uh-huh. Um, trying to understand the way he thinks. And if I was able to do that, hopefully I'll be able to capture some of the spirit of who he was. 
Mm-hmm. And then people would be able to watch this piece um, that deals a lot with redemption and, you know, closure and forgiveness, mm-hmm. you know. Um, obviously, you know, I mean, the story is that uh, when Nelson Mandela gives Desmond Tutu the task of running the Tutu Reconciliation Committee mm-hmm. and um, he is, he's doing that and listening to all the testimonies about that happened, the negative things, the horrible atrocities during apartheid, you know, in yeah. uh, the country. And then he gets this letter from, uh, in the film, he gets a letter from Bloomfeld or this sort of Afrikaans, this one person who represents all the negative things of the Afrikaans, you know, torture, murder, kidnapping, yes. all the different things that and had happened during that personally time. Personally, one of the worst perpetrators of it himself. Yes, exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they come together. Uh, he goes, Desmond Tutu goes to visit him in the cell. And um, in a way, just Desmond Tutu is hoping that he will be able to offer some form of this person to decide to find some redemption in what he's done. Uh-huh. And uh, I think he's tested Desmond Tutu by Bloomfeld to see if he can live completely by his beliefs, which are about love and about uh, forgiveness. Uh-huh. Can he forgive the atrocities in this man who's committed them? who seems to have no remorse or anything of that nature. Mm-hmm. You know, the question of amnesty, I think, is is out of the question because it was, there's part of the reconciliation process was whether or not they had done political action that could receive amnesty. And did this idea come from Mandela or did it come from Tutu, this amnesty idea? Uh, no, Nelson, Nelson Mandela came to Desmond mm-hmm. Tutu to ask him to. Mm-hmm. to do this. And it's it's an interesting form of sort of uh, restorative justice. Yeah, it's kind of close to what Lincoln did with the South, actually, after mm-hmm. the Civil War. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't want to punish, you know, the uh, South sure. and, you know, and all of that. So he kind of, you know, kind of put his arm out to the South. And of course, mm-hmm. yeah. he got punished for that. What happens, though, is like I think in the process of mm-hmm. healing and stuff, um, People have to hear what happened. There has to be some form of acknowledgement that mm-hmm. has occurred from the community itself. And then I think from that, you have to move to some form of rec- recompense or some form of reparation. Yeah. You know, something, whether it's the community get, getting a f- the person joining and helping the community, or whether it's money or whatever it might be, then you can move to some form of coexistence or um, reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, I think what Desmond Tutu is trying to do is move to the final possible option, which is... Uh, to have acceptance and love, mm-hmm. which is the overriding factor, which is the overriding factor that a lot of the great our great uh, minds of like Martin Luther King and such yes. uh, believed in and preached about. It's interesting because you know, being a writer, I always think of words. You know? mm. <laughs> but uh, restorative justice, you know, resolution, all those re words. But to me, there's a couple of words that kind of get in the way of that. One is revenge. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a. It seems like there's a human need for revenge, and a lot of times, <clears throat> like to me, I'm watching the movie. Like the 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 gang of twenty eight in some ways kind of represented mm-hmm. that natural human feeling of wanting to get back at the people who did you harm, but that notion of revenge uh, punishment because that's a part of it also that is kind of sticky. Mm. You know, like when you look at Nuremberg trials, for instance, you yes. know, and what the Nazis did, that was all about punishment. Yes. Nobody was trying to. That you was know. the difference in the trials, I think. Yes. You know, there was this possibility of, of amnesty to say your crimes and then the community itself being able to give you uh, an acknowledgement and allowing you to mm-hmm. get amnesty from the things you've done based on political actions that you yes. might have done. Nuremberg was uh, was not that. Yes. and But the 
but some of the brutality is why I'm I'm comparing mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. a lot of that, I feel that a lot of brutality that happens in real life, you really can't show on screen because I feel people really can't take what the truth of things are. Like, like we really haven't seen the brutality that happened in slavery. We really haven't seen it on screen. Mm-hmm. It's just too much, you know, Right. let alone some of the brutality that happened after that with the lynchings and that kind of stuff. But it's interesting the the courtroom scene in this movie kind of does a little bit of that for us, especially the reaction of when he's described. Oh, it's such a harrowing the, scene as I think about it. The, the mother. Yes. Yeah. There, there's a scene in the movie where the um, this one of the guys, he describes some of their actions, and it's so harrowing. And to me, it really pulls the movie together in a way that is – that is so interesting because it feels so real to me. <laughs> you know, it doesn't feel like it's a movie. Yes. It actually feels like you're listening to actual testimony. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it it's based on a lot of real testimonies and, yeah. and things that, that actually occurred. And some of the atrocities were such uh, heinous crimes, you know, mm-hmm. burning people to death with, you know, right. tires around their neck and yes. necklacing, as they called it, and different things of that nature. And then having a barbecue while that's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's part of the story that they could even do that. I think it was difficult for Desmond Tutu sometimes to listen to some of the testimonies as it was for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes he would break down into tears you yeah. know, on the table itself mm-hmm. and, uh, um, because the cries were so, and, and as you say, like, uh, looking at the nature of revenge and if you, mm-hmm. or does anyone get healed from that? I deal with that concept, uh, you know, um, in the South Sudan because they're in, in war right now. The civil right. war, it's uh, become or was at times become um, tribal war, you know, between the, you know, these two tribes there um, and how to, how to be able to bring some reconciliation between these two when so many different things have happened and occurred between the tribes, uh-huh. atrocities and problems that have um, happened, I think, uh, in the Noor. And that sparked all these different actions and stuff that uh-huh. uh, that now we try to find a way, we're searching for a way to to bring them together to be able to bring peace to the country because it could turn into a genocide like what happened in Rwanda. Right. You know? And as you say, and, and the things, the different atrocities that happened during the... Um, had the passage you know, mm-hmm. for the slaves. Yeah, and South Africa's had their own set of problems since that time in the last twenty years. And yeah, I mean, I think uh, the only the only issue that's been one of the big issues that was brought up, I think, from the trials or from from a part that was also economic reparation. Yes, and I think uh, that the distribution of wealth um, wasn't equalized, and the people didn't receive their their. Positions people contained and maintained their same positions in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the reparations that were given were only a small amount have been given out. And I think it makes a, a frustration and an anger. You have people who are abused in any way, like just an emotionally a person is abused. Yeah. I mean, if you, uh, if you don't, uh, address the core issues and try to deal with that and bring it out. And I think that's what they were trying to do mm-hmm. or were doing with, uh, with the trials is to at least bring out the first portion of like what actually occurred. So there can be some form of acknowledgement of what's yeah. happened and then we can move forward from there. But there's uh, been some difficulties, I think. It's kind of interesting to me, the South African approach, because it's almost using 
like therapy to accomplish, you know, uh, national goals or something. I don't think we've had quite the thing here, you know. No. Um, do you think something like that? Uh, I, well, I don't know if you could do it now, but even a government acknowledgement of some of the horrors of of some of our own apartheid, you could say, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I wonder if any of that would be healing at this moment. Do you have a take on that at all? Or have you thought about compared like what happened there with what's happened here in America? I mean, because we see, here's why I bring it up. There seems to be continual and maybe there is no one thing to do. I don't want to try to challenge you to come up with any solutions mm-hmm. or anything, mm-hmm. but like, for us, look, look how long, I mean, we're, we're the same age, right? We've mm-hmm. seen these things pop up over and over again, like racial, um, just racial anger about certain things, you know? And I wonder, like, what is the, the correct road or a better road to healing for that? And I wonder if the confession road, the national confession is one way to do it, you know? I'm not sure. I mean, I think, uh, are some of our storytellers are like putting some of these messages out of what mm-hmm. happened. So at least there's a form of acknowledgement. The community needs a form of acknowledgement so that then it helps them to build a strength, a sense of identity, mm-hmm. to move past the pains or the abuse, like in any abusive mm-hmm. situation, so that they would be able to acknowledge and be empowered as to who they are and what they deserve. And then there has to be an, a, the capacity to be able to to receive those benefits, whether it's an educational system, people mm-hmm. like being, you know, which they try to do with affirmative action, but um, but allowing people to have a quality education, have quality opportunities, have all these things have to be a part of the reparations and stuff mm-hmm. for us to move forward to the next part of real true coexistence or um, reconciliation between the two, of, between the tribes of the country, of this country. Yeah. You know, um, it see, it feels like some of that is happening in the Me Too movement right now, mm. where there is a public acknowledgement of sin, you know, yes, and a and a public reckoning that we're all saying this is bad. We're all we're acknowledging that it's bad. There's a confession of its badness. Yes. You know, it seems to be happening in yes. there, and it it feels like we're at a moment. And I'm a little cynical because things like that have felt that way before. Do you have a, a take on that at all? No, I think that. Certainly shifting the consciousness of the nation Mm -hmm. is making people uh, be aware of the situation more clearly, acknowledge the situation, and then recognize that if these atrocities or things continue, these horrible things happen, Mm -hmm. that something will occur from it. You know what I mean? And that kind of exists in that sort of area of not of reparations, but that's an interesting – it can go to reparation or it can go to um, crime or it can, you know, as you you say, Mm -hmm. uh, punishment. Right. You know what I mean? And so I, I certainly you can see that. You can see that people are changing their perspectives on sure. it and being embraced on a national level in some ways, I think. Yeah, it is kind of interesting. And when we talk about representation, uh, it was fun. Like, <laughs> it's fun. It's, it's interesting to me to see how art can help change things. Like sometimes first, sometimes it lags behind, but sometimes it does open the door. I think there are many like shows that had homosexuals in them in the 90s. You know, and now, like, even Ellen's show with her coming out, I mm-hmm. think helped a lot with changing people's views on sure. you know, on that and acceptance and that and that type of thing, you know. It's a sense, like you say, it's like acknowledgement is some form of, like, true strength yeah. and identity to be able to know for people to have to say that, yeah, you, you have the right and deserve to have the qualities of life, Yeah, you know. Yeah, and in, and in our business— like representation behind the scenes has always been something, mm. you know, I've tried to push for 
and and go for it because I think it makes an immediate change on screen too as well. Mm. And like Black Panther, of course, mm. where you were part of, yes, where uh, uh, that type of role, by the way, is my favorite type of forest role. <laughs> <You know>? uh, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> that uh, the soothsayer almost, or the, <laughs> <laughs> that type. Of, there's something mystical happening there. Uh, how much fun was it working on that? Did you? Did you have a sense that that was something special when you were doing it? I did think it was something special. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say. I mean, you couldn't, I think you couldn't go in there and like even doing that scene in, uh-huh. in the Warrior Falls. Those fight scenes, yeah. And watching and these waterfalls, 30-foot waterfalls standing down and then all the different tribes being there. Yeah. That sort of power that happens from that, the kingship that was going on. Sure. And kinship that was going on. And, um, and watching them each. They were each representing their own tribes and showing what they had to offer. Mm-hmm. They would show it. It's not. It's not all in the film, but their own different martial tools. That yeah, they oh, that's cool. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah. and then a king to be acknowledged and mm-hmm. to be embraced. You know, you, it was. You couldn't help but feel that there was yeah. something amazing happening. And it was on a large scale. So because Ryan, Ryan's an amazing director. He was working with some really large tools. You got drones flying up sure. into the shots and all these different things. So you can feel the majesty of it. You know what yeah. I mean? Uh, and I think the story itself, you know, lends itself to that. And, mm-hmm. and uh, then it just, just, Took on its own own life. Yeah. I think a cultural life that like that, that we're talking about of sure. uh, of 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 empowerment. Yeah, you know. And when you have someone like Kugler, you know, a lot of times it's hard to explain to people some of these things that black people can experience because we haven't really had it that much before, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And when when a black person like Kugler's in control, is in charge of the vision, mm-hmm. you know, and you have a story that is. Let's. I mean, it's a superhero story, but it's a black story too. You know, mm. here you are. You know, you had a completely different experience. You know, in Uganda, you know, a real African experience, and here you are in an idealized <laughs> type of mm. wish fulfillment type of thing. Mm. You know, and to see everybody involved, and then the effect that it had on the audience is amazing too. You know, mm. it's transformative. I think. Yeah, it really feels mm. like it. Yeah, you know? I mean, um, you you've seen like the people like seeing themselves. You, Feeling acknowledged, you know, yeah. um, that that's that's me. I'm, I'm represented here, mm-hmm. and I have a right. And not only do I have a right, I I'm on my own capacity can excel to the greatest heights. Yeah, you know. And uh, I think there was something powerful, and it was inclusive too. Yeah, you know, all not just all the tribes, but uh, in the message, the messages, different messages that he was doing. The, the whole, just the simple words, one tribe. Uh-huh. It's very powerful when that that uh, Ryan put in the film, which which is inclusively bringing everybody together, and that we all have to stand up, you know, lift each other up. If we rise, we have to lift up those around us and stuff, right. and break down as my and as he talked about migration, the the walls between us, uh-huh. so that we can all exist one in this powerful state, and uh, and and two like uh, to recognize the glory of. Gender and like the women who were like the power yes. of women and in and, and all the different capacities of what they exist right. in, you know, not just as warriors, which they did, which tonight, like I mean, that whole group of the Dora, like it's powerful, yeah. you know, but then you have like the science, mathematics, right. you know, with, with Shuri and, and you have the motherhood. And advisory leadership things. too. Yeah, yes, it's exactly. powerful, yeah. you know, so, uh, uh, and, and, and also Lapita's character, you know, you know, Actively working in the activism of changing things. Sure. You know what I mean? And uh, wanting to fix the world, actively out there doing so. 
you know right. what I mean? And representing that. So it was just so many things and so many uh, messages uh, inside of it. So I think it, 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 it does those things of acknowledgement and empowerment and, and people are trying to imprint that on themselves. Mm-hmm. You can see people even saluting each other uh, yeah. in a way that, uh, we haven't seen before. So I, think- I know, and dressing up stuff. I think it, what it did with the women's roles was even more impressive than the whole black thing, as you say, or whatever. Because of exactly for what you said, there were all these different roles, and it didn't feel like it was filtered from like a man's perspective or that it was judged. It had a judgment on them, you mm. know, of the way that we have to view women. They were just characters, you know, mm. and to me, they were just viewed that way. They didn't. They didn't have to be defined by the men on the screen either. It seemed too. No, you know, even though they were in relationships, they weren't Who, defined by that in their roles on screen. There was a distinctive. I don't know. I'm sure Brian's such a brilliant guy. Mm-hmm. Distinctive moments where it was clear where Denai and and her her lover or or um, Daniel are. Yes, and she's like, no, I, I stand by what I believe. Right. You know, that's exactly not right. about whatever you want, but by what I believe. Yes. And uh, and usually that's a man's role where that moral code mm-hmm. is what they live by. And then that will define the relationship. But this time it was a woman who did it. Yeah. And he had to acknowledge like, all right, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> yeah. Know? And it was, it's, it's interesting when we were talking about, you were, you were talking about quantum physics earlier in a way. Oh, right. Because I tend to talk about quantum physics when I'm just in my spare time. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> it's kind of how a brother does it. But, that's, mm-hmm. but that was kind of what was interesting about the film, too. I think mm-hmm. the covert message about um, indigenous knowledge and contemporary technology. So ancient yes. contemporary technology. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Uh, was was. was clustered through the film, you know, mm-hmm. they were following the traditions of registering with the ancestors, of registering with each other, of, of, of dealing with their anointments, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And using this, and, and the technology existing and coexisting at the same time with that, you know, uh, uh-huh. which is, I think, is... The, now, if brothers really have vibranium, come on, Forrest. <laughs> what, what, would, what would brothers really do with vibranium? With vibranium? <laughs> <laughs> I can only or, or maybe that should be reparations. Maybe we should actually get to have actual vibranium. That would be amazing. Well, what do you think is the best way to to keep going with this, to, to get this diversity behind the camera? Um, how does that happen in, in more ways, and not just the black-white thing, but in all the ways that it's going on? It's encouraging to see the Oscars and, and see people like Guillermo I mean, be what the fourth out of five best directors go to a Mexican. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's kind of amazing for the Oscars, you know. Yeah, that that's just a thing now. You it's know, powerful. You know, yeah. he's such a you know exceptional filmmaker, and yeah, he's visionary. Yeah, and so I think that you know there was a lot of statements that were made that night. Mm-hmm. You know, different cultures, native native communities speaking out, people sure. acknowledging the warriors are the soldiers that are taking care of the nation and stuff. Or, right. Um, the you know, as you say, the Me Too movement and mm-hmm. what's happening with that and and just the the diversity of individuals coming. And I think this this acknowledgement is in this movement forward will help continue us moving moving yeah. in the same direction. And I think the obviously the financial equations of like some of the films that are coming out and the success of them mm-hmm. will also uh, fuel more and more product to be Definitely. Forward. I always said the color Hollywood cares about the most is green. That's just a fact. Mm. <laughs> you mm. know? And they, they get on that green train like as yeah. fast as possible. 
when something's going on. Are we going to see you behind the camera more? Do you have interest in doing that? No, I mean, my, as a company with me and my partner, Nina Yang, we mm-hmm. produce, you know, films. Sure. You know, uh, we've produced, I think, like five films so far. We mm-hmm. have a few coming out. We did First, we did Fruvel Station. Right. Then uh, we did uh, Dope. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, no. We do, the next the second film was a great film called Songs My Brother Taught Me. Mm-hmm. It was directed by Chloe Zhao uh, about the Native the Native American community mm-hmm. uh, in Pinewood Reservation. And then um, then we did Dope, and then we we did uh, Roxanne Roxanne, yeah, which is coming out soon, and then as well as uh, Sorry to Bother You. Mm-hmm. So I'm really existing in those. Uh, producing those projects and working with, with Nina on moving those things forward and these amazing new filmmakers mm-hmm. to make sure that their stories get told. Do you see yourself in like a mentorship role almost with some of that? or I, I, I see myself as someone who supports new voices yeah. Yeah. and supports stories that are that deal with, that have a social conscience. It's fun to do that, isn't it? To find new voices and new expressions and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that type of thing. Um, do you have any interest in directing anymore or? Yeah, I mean, at some point when I find the right thing mm-hmm. to do, right you know, uh, I'm sure I'll direct again in the next few years. I've been thinking about it more, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, just have to find the right, the right thing, the right thing to say. Yeah, I had developed a piece on, on again on child soldiers that that I was working on and child soldiers. Make, yeah, mm-hmm. may go back to deal with that. You know, it's something that I deal with like on our, in my foundation quite a bit, okay. a lot. Yeah, you know, because you know, when we're working with youths, uh, we're training them in. You know, in, in computer technology or ICTs and life skills and uh, business skills, uh, become making them social entrepreneurs, and mm-hmm. then they create businesses. Then we finance their businesses, and and it takes a lot to move. Sometimes uh, someone who's been a child soldier working in the field and who's had to commit atrocities against people, <sighs> and then to to nurture them or to allow them the support to allow them to f- to find their greater selves and stuff, and then mm-hmm. actually give back to the community from. Uh, from what they have to offer, you know, so yeah. it's a goal. Any uh, any theater uh, in your future? Because I, I just think you're such a, you know, of course I've been a fan of yours for, for a long time, but um, I'd love to see you on the stage, you know. Have, have you thought about theater or something else that you want to do to maybe do a different type of storytelling or other type of stories out? I mean— I think I think maybe over the next few years I'll get mm-hmm. up on the stage again. I was did something. Uh, Huey, uh, it was interesting uh, to to be on the stage and to be mm-hmm. feeling the audience. It's a powerful thing to feel the Absolutely. audience. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, you, yeah, you know what that is. And uh, so when we find the right thing, mm-hmm. I have to really I will be careful. Maybe it'll be something original. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I hope we find out about it soon. Yeah. <laughs> um, what else should we know about that's coming up with you? For us, anything else we should look out for? When is Roxanne Roxanne coming out? Uh, it comes out uh, in a couple of weeks. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, we, we follow we follow her. You know, this female rap artist, and uh-huh. and then uh, the struggles and things that she had. You know, and living and coming up in the Bronx and stuff, mm-hmm. but trying to find herself and and uh, finding her voice. And it's very powerful. I, I, as an actor, I guess. I have a few films coming out still, mm-hmm. you know. Just uh, one called Burton that I did, um, which deals with uh, a Ku Klux Klan memorabilia shop. It's wow, a, it's a true story. Of, and of, that's where I do all my Christmas shopping. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, true. <laughs> you guys are out of hoods. You got to be kidding me! It's Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Uh, it, 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 it's about a guy who falls in grace as a Klansman and 
and this Reverend, uh, actually Reverend Kennedy, it's a real person, it's a real mm-hmm. true story, takes him in and uh, helps him to find his way. Mm-hmm. And uh, the story of this young man's uh, coming down a different understanding of, of, uh, of race and, yeah. and his behaviors and things and finding some redemption from it. Yeah. Now, having played so many real people, is there anybody out there who you still really would love to play or could see yourself playing possibly? Um, I don't know. You know, I had I had uh, a while back, a long time ago, I had developed a Louis Armstrong piece. You know? Oh, really? But, That'd be uh, cool. Now uh, you got to play a whole different instrument, <laughs> <laughs> which would have been easier for me because I used to play the baritone horn, so I didn't okay. know brass a little bit better than uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. than woodwind. That would but, be uh, great, actually. <laughs> I feel like Louis Armstrong has kind of fallen through the cracks a little bit in terms of the society really knowing who he is. You know? I mean, people know the voice, I think, more than know who he is. Yeah. I feel you know, like. the music, you know, you hear it yeah. every Christmas. You're going to be walking through somewhere and you're going to be hearing yeah. it. So. <laughs> I mean, you just hear that and people go, oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. Who is that guy? What, why doesn't he take a lozenge? His voice seems like a <laughs> It's funny. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still looking, you know, searching to figure out what. Yeah. I don't know what I, I know. I feel like there are a lot of, you know, the movie Hidden Figures was a oh, yeah. a revelation for myself because I was like a big space nerd growing up. Okay. I mean, like I knew everything about NASA. You know, I had like the models of the spacecrafts and you know, like okay. nobody knew more about the space program than me. I was also very conscious of what was happening racially as a kid. I remember knowing who Stokely Carmichael was. Oh, okay. You know, this is in the late 60s, right? And I was a kid, you know, and I didn't know about the women in that movie for us. Huh. That's shocking to me. Yeah. Like, how could I not know that? (laughs) And the fact that they're hiding in plain sight in our society like that is fascinating to me. But I I feel like (laughs) it's not just those women. There are a lot of other hidden figures, you know, people who have made contributions and who are among us and have great stories, you know, that are waiting to be told, like people like yourself. Hmm. Yeah. I'm saying get on it, Forrest. All right, I'm going to get on it. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. I'm I'm waiting for the veil to be opened now. Paul Robeson. You can do Paul Robeson's story. Yeah. yeah. A lot They've of done a play about him, right? There's, there must have been a I think so, yeah. Few. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pushing Forrest to give us more because I want more. <laughs> um, last thing I'll say is how much um, <laughs> I enjoyed you on The Shield. I was a huge oh, watcher of The Shield. That must have been fun to play that type of character. I love playing it. it you were so really evil in that. I didn't see him as evil. You were evil, Forrest. <laughs> he was like trying to like. You he were was, horrible. He was kind of an archangel, you know. No, he was, he like, was not an archangel. Yeah, there was, was nothing angelic about it. He was a horrible man. Why? Why do you think so? He was horrible. He was this. But he was trying him. to get somebody who was like corrupt and harming people and, and hurting, who you watched kill people. Yeah, and he was trying to get him off the streets. How can that but be? He, <laughs> <laughs> he was worse than Idi Amin in my, in my opinion. <laughs> no, but that was a fun show. Uh, but anyhow, it's just to say how much fun stuff you're doing. But Forrest, thanks for stopping by. The Forgiven is the movie. Yeah, it's uh, March 9th, I believe. Yes, it is. is the premiere date. If you're listening to this before then. Go see it March 9th. Afterwards, keep going to see it. But your performance in it, to me, is an Oscar-worthy performance. It's so amazing. Thanks. Um, It's such a—it has so much power, and it's so restrained at the same time, you know, which is—it's just really, really beautiful to watch. Thanks. Very powerful, too. Thanks, Forrest. Thanks. Thanks.